0: You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me today. As the war between the sons of Jacob and the sons of Ishmael carry on, and it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon, we hear nonstop about the innocent Gazan civilians. What's the proper way to carry on with this war? Do we consider the lives of the non-combatants, the civilians in Gaza, or do we not? Everyone's got a worldview, or an opinion, how to relate to the Gazan civilians. For sure, everybody wants to see the Hamas wiped out. What about the civilians? And so as Jews, we don't form our opinions according to the latest fad or to the particular spirit of the times we live in, because we Jews have objective truth, and it's called the Torah. And it's from there that we draw our worldview. And so when it comes to conducting ourselves in a war, whether there's collective punishment, whether there isn't, whether there's a concept of innocence or not, forget about all the nonsense you hear on TV and turn to Genesis chapter 34 because the Torah is God's word. It's giving us divine knowledge how to handle situations like this. What happens in Genesis chapter 34 in Parsha Tvayishlach, the Parsha we just read this past Shabbat? Well, Jacob, had settled on the outskirts of the town of Shem, which was ruled by somebody named Chamor, and his daughter Dina went out to see the town. Now Chamor had a son named Shem, and he abducted her and he raped her, and he fell in love with her. He wants to marry her. And so Jacob, he keeps quiet, but his sons are furious. They want to rescue her and they want to punish the people of Shem. And so what happens is Chamor and his son Shem. They come to visit the family and they ask them to give consent to the marriage. And then Jacob and his sons, they trick them. They pretend to take the offer seriously. They tell Chamor, yeah, we'll settle among you and we'll intermarry with you guys on one condition, that all your males circumcise themselves. Because after all, we're Jews, we're circumcised. We can't just marry uncircumcised Philistines, if you know what I mean. And so Chamor and Shechem bring back that proposal to the people of the town, and they agree. And on the third day of the circumcision, when it really hurts, when the pain is at its height, and the men are incapacitated, Shimon and Levi, the brothers of Dina, enter the town and kill every single male. Yaakov is upset about it. He might have known that they were tricking them into giving a circumcision, but he probably thought they were just gonna take Dina back while everybody was weak. He didn't know that Shimon and Levi are going to kill every male. And so he rebukes his son, Shimon and Levi. And he says, you have made me odious to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites, they're going to hate me now. And I am few in number. And they're going to join forces and attack me. And me and my household will be destroyed. And Shimon and Levi give a response that echoes throughout the ages. And they say, are we going to let them treat our sister like a prostitute? So before getting into the question of who was right, Shimon and Levi, or the father Yaakov, let's look at this act. Dina, the daughter of Yaakov and the sister of Shimon and Levi, was violated by one person, and yet they wiped out the entire town. I would call that a lot of collateral damage there. The crime perpetuated against Dina, it wasn't a national crime, it was a sexual crime. That is, it's something personal, not national, yet Shimon and Levi wiped out the city. So, who is right? Well, if you're going to read commentary by the modern day rabbis, the modern dox types, they will condemn Shimon and Levi and justify Yaakov. After all, Yaakov rebukes them. And most modern rabbis, even if they don't condemn Shimon and Levi, they'll have strong reservations about what they did. And to prove their point, they jump to Parshat V'Yichi, that's the last Parshah in the book of Genesis, where Jacob curses the anger of Shimon and Levi for what they did in Shechem. In other words, the proof they use to prove that Shimon and Levi were wrong, they take it from Pashat Vayichi later on when Jacob was on his deathbed when he was giving blessings and chastisements to his sons. But instead of jumping to Pashat Vayichi, let's look inside this Pasha right here that we just read. If you notice, Jacob's claim against his sons was never on a moral basis. He didn't say, hey, you killed innocent people. How dare you kill these innocent individuals? No, no, that wasn't his claim at all. What did he say? That I'm few in number. You're going to get me in trouble. You're going to give me a bad reputation among the Canaanites who live in the land, and they're going to band together and attack me and my family, and I'm going to be wiped out. So just looking at that, looking at what Jacob said, he didn't rebuke them for killing innocent civilians. His claim was a very practical one. And regarding that claim, the commentator the Radak says the following Pachad Yaakov Keminago that Yaakov was afraid as usual. That is just like at the outset of this Pasha, Pasha of Yishlach, when he was afraid to face Esav, we saw he was frightened. Here he is, frightened again. And that's why all the commentators, the ancient commentators, The original Torah commentators, not the modern docs, modern rabbis who were trying to do manipulations and acrobatics to somehow turn Shimon and Levi into bad guys and making Jacob the right one. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the original commentators, the Rambam, the Maharal, the Malbim, the Ralbag. They all compliment Shimon and Levi. The only argument amongst them isn't if it was a mitzvah, what they did. They only differ as to the reason Shimon and Levi were allowed to inflict collective punishment on the inhabitants of Shechem. But no commentator differs or criticizes the deed itself. For instance, the Rambam, Maimonides, he vindicates the brothers for the following reason. He explains that the establishment of justice and the rule of law is one of the seven laws of Noah, which is binding on all humanity. A Bnei Noach, a child of Noach, one of the seven mitzvahs of Bnei Noach is to establish court systems. They're supposed to establish judges and officers in, in every neighborhood to rule and they have to enforce the other six commandments that they have as Bnei Noach. And so because the people of the city did not bring Shem, the son of Chamor, to trial, they did bring him to justice for what he did to the Dina, the daughter of Yaakov, they were all chayav mitah, they were all obligated the death penalty. And that's why Shimon and Levi were allowed to kill them. And so there is a principle of collective responsibility. The inhabitants of Shem they knew that their prince committed a crime. They failed to bring him to court. So they are collectively guilty of this injustice. That's the Rambam. The Maharal from Prague, he differs from the Rambam. He says like this, look, you can't expect the people to put their prince on trial because they're afraid of him. They were what we call anusim. They were forcibly prevented from putting up on trial because he's the prince and they're peasants. How can they put up on? So how can they bring him to justice? So the Maharal says that she and Levi were justified because we're talking about two distinct peoples. The children of Yaakov were already considered an am, a nation, and the people of Shem were considered a nation. And so they went to war on them as a collective, as a collective enterprise. And in a war, there's no such thing as innocence. The Maharal uses the expression din Uma." They are judged as being part of the collective. They are all part of that same nation that committed this atrocity. And therefore, Shimon and Levi were allowed to take vengeance on all of them. Now, there's nothing easier to bring all the praise that the sages heap upon Shimon and Levi. And I could do it all day. But I would just want to give a couple of points here. Do you know that every tribe had its own flag? And we know that in the desert, they carried their flags, each tribe with his own flag that he was proud of, his own banner. And on their flag was a picture of something that characterized them that they were indeed proud of. For instance, on the flag of Reuven were the Dudaim, were the flowers he brought for his mother because he had respect for his mother. Levi had a picture of the Urim because the priest, is descended from the tribe of Levi, and he wears the Urim And what do you think was on the flag of Shimon? A picture of the city of Shechem. And the sages say, why? Because of their great misirut nefesh, their great self-sacrifice in wiping out the people of Shechem. And so if their act was wrong, why would a sin be on their flag? And sometimes you could see this for yourself. A lot of synagogues on the curtain of the ark, on the uh, parochet, it's called. A lot of times you'll have pictures and sometimes you'll have a picture of each tribe's symbol. You see that a lot. Check out the symbol of Shimon. It's a picture of Shem. So I can't think of a much greater proof than that. But there are plenty of others to prove that Shimon and Levi were correct in what they did. If you go to the very next episode after Shimon and Levi wipe out Shem, God says to Jacob, get up and go to Betel. So as they're journeying to Betel in chapter 35, the verse is like this. And the terror of God was felt in all the cities around them. And they did not pursue Jacob's sons. So we see right there in black and white that Shimon and Levi were right. Their father was worried that because they're small in number, now all the nations are going to attack us. And that's your classic exilic response. Always worried, what the goyim are going to say. That's what Yaakov was telling them, right? I'm small in number, they're going to attack me. And so when Shimon and Levi answered him, is our sister going to be like a prostitute? They were telling him, yeah, because we're small in number, we got to show that we can't be pushed around. Because if we let this go, they're going to continue to abuse us. So we got to show them right now as the boss. We got to be, as Bob Dylan says, we got to be the neighborhood bully so we don't get bullied. And so you see it worked because it says the terror of God was felt in all the cities around them. And nobody bothered Jacob's sons. And by the way, and this is very important, when Shimon and Levi answer their father and say, "Kizonata sechotenu, should we allow our sister to be treated like a prostitute? That's how the chapter ends. Jacob doesn't have a response. It's what we call Jacob's silence proves that his sons were right. It's like they put an exclamation point on the whole episode when the chapter just ends that way. Should we let our sister be a prostitute? That's how the chapter ends. Jacob has nothing to say back to them. And I want to bring just one more proof to show how Shimon and Levi's act was an inspiration for generations. It was legendary. It was giant. It was so impactful and influenced further generations. And because Hanukkah's coming up this week, I want to read a little story to show how Shimon and Levi's act in Shechem was a trigger for the holiday of Hanukkah. And this is a story that's brought down in Midrash Hanukkah, and it says like this, during the times of the Greeks, that when Jewish girls were married, they were forced to sleep with the Greek governor who was ruling that city. And this continued for three years and seven months until the following event happened. A daughter of Metatiyahu, the Kohenagadol, she just got married. And during the festive meal, Hannah Bat Metatiyahu, that was her name, Chana. Chana, the daughter of Metatiyahu, she stood up on the table in front of all the people there. And she ripped her dress and she exposed part of herself and her brothers and her father and her in-laws. They were terribly embarrassed and they did Kriya. They tore their garment out of mourning and they wanted to even kill her. And she said to them, shim'uni yachai vedodai, listen to me, my brothers, my family. If you're getting so upset that I'm standing before righteous people with my body exposed, And you're so angry and zealous with rage. Where's your zealous indignation and rage for the fact that soon I'm going to have to sleep with this uncircumcised governor? Why ain't you upset about that? And she continues, you should learn from Shimon and Levi, the brothers of Dina. There were only two of them and they were zealous for their sister's sake and they killed our entire city and and Hashem gave them Shatadoshmaya and they succeeded and they were just two and you're five brothers... There's five of you, and there's other 200 able-bodied priests who can help you. Put your faith in Hashem, and He will help you. And then she uses the expression, Ki en la Hashem as Jonathan said to his arms bearer, Hashem has no limitations. He can deliver the victory, even with a few. And so according to this, this is what triggered the Maccabean rebellion. Chana, the daughter of Matatiyahu, she scolded her brothers in this way, and she gave the example and drew her inspiration from who? from Shimon and Levi, who were kana'i Nut, who defended the honor of the Jewish girls. So just think what happened on October 7th, how many Jewish women were raped. Where's Shimon? Where's Levi? There's no Shimon and Levi. We got Shimon Peres and Rami Levi. That's about it. But at least we should understand that this is how a Jew behaves. Even if we trick them into circumcising themselves, that's just fine. Anything you do to win. And there's something else we can see here that we can take with us regarding the war in Gaza. The brothers didn't listen to their father. I mean, Jacob was the commander, right? They didn't listen. They did what they wanted because they knew it was the right thing. And the fact is, the average soldier today, he's got high morale and motivation. He really does want to take vengeance. He does want to take the example of Shimon and Levy. He's got no problem with it. But his hands are tied by these generals who call for ceasefires and they don't let him finish the job. Shimon and Levy, they didn't ask. They just did the right thing. And there are some letters going around the internet where the soldiers are saying that we're not going to stop. We're just going to keep going. Halavai. So now that we've covered how to deal with the Gazans, question is, how do you deal with Esav? Esav, that's the USA. If you take USA backwards, it spells Esav, right? USA is Esau. How do we deal with them? Because the fact is, it's the USA that's more problematic, really, than Yishmael. They might come at you nice, Maybe they speak nicely and they act that like they're trying to help us and they're our friends. But the fact is they stymie us. And we see that when Jacob meets Esau, it says that Esau kissed Jacob. He kissed him. But the funny thing is on the word kiss, in Hebrew, you have these dots, a lot of little dots. You're not going to see that anywhere in the Torah, except for this particular word. You have a whole bunch of dots over in the that he kissed him. And the sages teach us he was trying to bite him like a vampire, he was trying to bite his neck. And that's why the word kiss has these dots over it because it wasn't really a kiss, it was a bite. Because when Esau says he's helping you and he's kissing you, he's biting you, he's really trying to harm you, but he's doing it with a smile. And we can learn from Jacob's mistakes what's the proper way to deal with Esau. So what happens at the very beginning of the Pasha? Jacob Yaakov has left Levan and he knows he's got a confrontation coming with Esau. And so Dva Tvayishlach opens up Yaakov sends messengers to Esau. He's getting ready for the confrontation. And on this verse where Jacob sends messengers, the sages bring a verse from Proverbs, which basically says, let sleeping dogs lie. What do you mean, let sleeping dogs lie? They say that Esau, he was like a sleeping dog. He forgot all about you. 20 years have passed. You think he's still thinking about you all the time? You just woke him up out of your fear. By sending messengers, you aroused him. You should have let the sleeping dog lie and let him just go his way. He would have went his way and you would have gone your way. But out of a fear, you aroused the sleeping dog. And so you're bringing this confrontation and this conflict upon yourself through your fear. And that's how every Israeli government has been. Out of a fear of the Gentile, they're constantly playing into their hands. We make ourselves needy as if we can't exist without the United States. Don't we realize that a strong Israel is an American interest as well? that we provide battle testing for American arms, that Israel's intelligence has assisted the U.S. in intelligence gathering for all kinds of operations. There's no price on that, that Israel possesses a nuclear arsenal of hundreds of weapons. We don't have to act like some schnorrer all the time, but since we see ourselves as some beggar in the doorway, we bring upon ourselves the pressure, just just like Jacob brought upon himself Esau. And what happens when Jacob does finally confront Esau? Well, first he sends him gifts, he prays, and he's ready for war. And he ends up bowing down to him. Now, of course, Jacob, he's in a tough spot. Esau has 400 warriors with him. Jacob's got a family. He's got young kids to worry about and his wives. It's no match. Of course, he's at a disadvantage. But the sages in the Midrash criticize Jacob for groveling just a little too much to Esau. And this is what they say. And I'm reading this from Midrash Rabbah, Parashat Vayishlach. Where do the sages criticize Jacob here? Because he said Adoni. He said my master. He didn't just say it once. He said it eight times. You could see that in the verses. Adoni, Adoni, my master, my master. That he didn't have to do. I understand you have to bow down. I understand you gotta give him gifts. I understand you have to put your head down a little bit. You can't go head to head with him. You have to even bow down. Okay. But to say Adoni, my master eight times. And I'm gonna read the words of the midrash. Omalako Hu. the Almighty said, You humiliated yourself and you called Esau, my master, eight times? Well, I'm telling you, I am going to establish eight kings in the land of Edom before I establish even one king from your descendants in the land of Israel. And they bring the verses at the end of the Parsha where we have the descendants of Esau what does it say? Ela Melechim, And these were the kings who ruled in Edom. And they give their names, Bela, Yovav, Chusham, Shaul, etc. And that was eight kings that ruled in Edom before one king ruled in Israel. Why? Because Jacob eight times called Esau Adoni, my master. That's too much already. That's already a humiliation. So yeah, we learn a lot from Jacob. We learn the good things he did, but we also learn of the mistakes he made. And it's understandable. We're not here to rank on Jacob. Jacob's in a tough spot. It's not like Abraham who was super wealthy and Yitzhak didn't have all these challenges. Jacob has a lot of challenges. We're the children of Yisrael, Bnei Israel, the children of Jacob. We got challenges too. And we have to learn from these mistakes here how to deal with the Esau's of the world. You stand up tall, you don't grovel because the more you grovel and the more you step back, you're inviting him to keep pressuring you. That is, if we stood up to Joe Biden and said, listen, Joe, you old fart, we got a nuclear arsenal, you know? I mean, if you don't help us, we'll take care of it ourselves. You want to help us, you can help us, but just stay out of it when it comes to telling us how to fight this war. And if you don't like it, we'll take care of the Gazans as we know how, like Shimon and Levi did. Because when you're constantly looking over your shoulder, what is my master going to say? We're humiliating ourselves as the chosen people, which is the humiliation of Hashem. It's as if he can't help us. And we're cheapening the blood of the Jews that have been spilled and the honor of the Jewish women who have been raped. So forget about everything else. Get it out of your mind. The good book, the Torah, that's our guide. It doesn't always jibe with Western values. Okay, who said that those Western values are pure and holy and right in the first place? It's the Torah that has stood the test of time. So let's get back to that, to Shimon and Levi, the original sons of Jacob. It's the Shimon and Levi's who are showing us what are Jewish ethics. And so how dare we compromise and not fight this war to the very end. Are we going to let our sister be treated like a harlot? Let's let those words of Shimon and Levi ring in our ears. That's it for me. I'll be back next week, God willing. Don't forget to listen to my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. We learn about King David, who was also no slouch when it came to defending Jewish honor. Let's learn from of the daughter of B'tityahu and her brothers who knew how to defend Jewish honor. And that's why we have the holiday of Hanukkah. Have a great Hanukkah. And by the way, go to my Facebook page, which is called Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. And, and there you'll see a whole bunch of classes on the holiday of Hanukkah. You'll see that the holiday of Hanukkah has a lot more to it than jelly donuts and dreidels. And if you listen to the Shirim, you'll see it's a story of Jewish heroism and gvura about heroic Jews who rose up who rose up against the Greeks to defend their religion and their land. So again, you can find that on Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes on the Facebook page where I posted the Shiorim. And I'll see you next week.